Welcome to the next edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. I'm here with my friend, Stephanie Young, who is the CEO of Riva, which is a platform that allows individuals to uh, do better job negotiating on their job. Stephanie and I first met uh, when we were classmates together at Stanford Graduate School of Business, and she was one, one of the youngest members of her class and one of the most impressive. And it's really great to see her doing great things in the entrepreneurial scene at this point. So Stephanie, thank you so much for being here tonight. My pleasure to be here, Ben. So I want to start with what you're doing currently with your company. Can you tell us about Riva and what it does? Sure, sure. So Riva was basically the brainchild of a personal experience. So when I was coming out of undergrad and going into my first job, it was over at Google. I got my offer and was over the moon excited and didn't even think about negotiating it. It wasn't even something that even crossed my mind. I was 22 years old at the time, and I'm sure many of you resonate with this when your first job out of college. Uh, no one thinks that they should go ask for more money. And it was my dad, actually, who told me, Stephanie, this is a common thing in business. In the corporate world, everyone does this. And to be honest, I didn't believe him. I just, you know, as all kids do with their parents when they're 22, right? They brush them off and say, thanks, dad, but see you later. Um, but I actually tried it. I went and went to my recruiter, uh, extraordinarily nice woman, and said, had no idea what to say, essentially, just went up to her and said, can I have some more money? And she was extremely nice and was like, Stephanie, this, this offer we know is, is a great offer. You should just sign it. And my response was, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry sign it right now and I'll see you Monday, right? And then I got into the job and found out that that was not at all what I should have done. And that there were plenty of other folks who were also fresh grads from college who had gone in and actually gotten quite a bit more, significant amount more. And it's not just for that year, right? That was money that I would not have that year and the next year and the next year. And on top of that, my raises and my promotions, et cetera, were all going to be less significant than theirs. And the research and shows that this is in the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars um, in you know five to 10 years even. Um, so the startup was a brainchild of that. And basically what happened was this personal, very personal experience happened to me. And it was nothing besides just a, a story. You know, it's just a story that I told. Um, it became very real at the GSB when we were both there. And uh, you remember back in 2017 when we were watching our classmates and we were about to graduate and everyone was getting job offers and, you know, et cetera. Tons of our classmates also were going through this process and also not negotiating as well. And this is after, this is after taking negotiations classes, whether you took it or not, at the GSB, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Um, but I, I met I met David, who's my co-founder, uh, through a classmate of ours. Actually, he's the father of Eric, um, a class one of Eric Lacks, one of our classmates, and he actually saw this problem from the other side as a professor. So literally, he would have students come by his just stream by his office, asking him for help. He was a negotiations professor uh, at HBS, and so literally, he would have students stream by his office being like, David, I got this job offer. What do I do? I need help. And so that's how this whole thing started. Um, it's gone through a bunch of different cycles. Uh, but what we have now is we have this whole generation platform. So you can actually, it's really, it's really quite simple. You can actually go onto it and you put in details about your position and also your situation. And there's a bunch of different categories. For example, if you're a if you're coming back from maternity leave or paternity leave, uh, some of these trickier situations, right? Or you're coming from outside the industry or you're coming from an internship, et cetera. Uh, what we do is we look at our sources and our insight into it. And we use that to generate basically a range that you can then use to negotiate with. And we also then generate the email that you can send back to the recruiter in order to make the first ask. And after that happens, um, the recruiter will get back to you and there'll be a little bit of verbal or email conversation. 
Um, but our system is working in the tune of people are getting between five to sometimes sixty thousand dollars more using these wow. using these sort of systems, templated systems. So it's real and it works, and it's having real life impacts on on just people negotiating their job offers. Well, that's fantastic. And it sounds like a great platform. And definitely I want to get into some of the details, but maybe let's back up to when you first decided to transition to entrepreneurship. You mentioned that you've gone through a couple of iterations. What was the initial hypothesis and how did you go out and test it in the market? Yeah. Um, the biggest thing we could not figure out at the beginning was how much coaching there should be. If it should be more of a coaching platform or should be more of a automation, AI, script generation platform. And this was a very tricky thing for us to figure out because it's also a very taboo subject that no one really wants to talk about. And even when you do talk to people about it, it's a little bit like uh, picking a color for your house, you know, painting the walls. Sometimes you don't really know what you want until you see it on the wall. If you go to Home Depot and look at all the color palettes, it's hard to know exactly what it is you want until you literally put the paint on the wall. And so same thing here. When you go and talk to people about their experiences negotiating, you hear one set of things before and after they negotiate. And if you talk to them in the moment when they're actually negotiating, you hear a very different set of, set of emotions and opinions. So that's extremely difficult to do, right? Because we literally, in the course of a year, or you might only negotiate a job offer once every, say, three years, two years, and you're really only negotiating it for, say, a week, sometimes less, two to you know, two days sometimes. And to find people to talk to who are in that exact moment of time was extremely difficult. So we tried all kinds of things. We tried replicating the process. We tried faking it. We tried doing simulations in order to get better feedback for ourselves. Um, but ultimately what we decided to do was just try both. So we have, we tried a coaching platform S thing, and we also tried this automation. Um, and what we learned is that <laughs> unsurprisingly, everyone needs something slightly different. Uh, so some people are extremely comfortable with talking and the negotiating part and they feel extremely comfortable having these conversations. What they need help on is data, numbers, and the do's and don'ts, what's approach, like unspoken rules of negotiating. Some people are completely fine on the number side, as in they're pretty open to what they, what they receive, but their biggest thing is just doing it at all and getting a little bit of help, just getting the conversation going or where to even start, right? Um, so unsurprisingly, we found that everyone needs something slightly different. And so what we anchored on was what we could sort of provide value in at scale. And so what we do is we ourselves just put together a hybrid approach. And so we built automation. The automation can run at scale always, right? The definition of automation, it can run at scale. And then we layer on coaching features. So if you want to pay for coaching features, you can then pay more and get these coaching features. Um, and what we found is really, actually really um, inspiring is that a lot of people are really trying to educate themselves and also tackle these things themselves, not just from a, uh, not just from a, uh, they want to sort of uh, not pay for a coach kind of perspective, but really a self-improvement perspective as in they want to learn. It's not just that they want to get the outcome today is that they want to learn how to do it for tomorrow. So that's been a very inspiring insight that we've learned um, is how willing people are to get their hands dirty and just learn about this process and make it their own. Totally. And what is the market you're focused on? You mentioned kind of just out of college or MBA, would this be applicable for mid-career professionals or senior professionals? Like what's, what's your target market? Yeah, here? that's a great question. Um, so when we first started the company, it was geared towards early career professionals. So we're talking people straight out of college, uh, a couple years out, doing pretty interesting jobs, but still very early in their careers and pre sort of learning about negotiating. Um, in due course of the company, we've actually helped executives. <laughs> uh, we've helped some 
pretty senior level executives, directors that hold divisions, CEOs of their divisions. Um, we've helped VPs, a whole whole different a whole different variety of roles and also positions. Um, but when you get to that level, say you're VP or you're the president of a, an organization, for example, um, you don't really want to execute your negotiations primarily over email. You can obviously write some emails, but you want to pick up the phone or even better go in person. I'm mean, obviously not during COVID, but you want this to be as personal as possible. And so the automation very much is geared towards young professionals. Um, and we view it as you need to use all the tools in your toolbox. So use the automation, get those emails out, then go have those conversations with the recruiter um, and use the email to drive those conversations. And so don't wing it or don't try to sort of make it up off the top of your head, um, but use, use resources and data and map out your talking points, then go have those conversations. Um, and that's when we see people become really successful with these negotiations. Yeah, so maybe walk us through, you know, I, I just got a job offer from a new company I'm going to via the recruiter. What are the, how should I structure my thinking and how should I engage in negotiation? Yeah, so the first thing is that recruiters are 100% expecting it. So the data shows that 84% of companies, they always underscore on the always expect you to negotiate. So they know it's coming. So in fact, they're probably sitting on their hands waiting for it. Um, and after you get the offer, uh, what we recommend is this is going to be, this is going to be sort of first level. Yeah, you, it might be too basic for, for this audience, but just say thank you and don't give any opinions about the offer. Don't say it's good or bad or high or low or, you know, wrong location. There's, when you first get that offer, usually over the phone, usually the recruiter will pick up the phone and call you and give you that verbal offer. Um, just say thank you and uh, express your enthusiasm and gratitude for the opportunity and then just hang up the phone. Because nothing you say then is going to be uh, thought out in advance. And that's how you want every conversation with a recruiter to go is you have time to think these things out in advance. Um, then after this, now you want to go wrangle all the resources and data you can go find. So even prior to this, you can do this, but call friends, call coworkers, advisors, mentors, whoever it may be. Um, and I have a strong belief that we should talk more about salaries and compensation. The companies, they talk, I mean, they have entire, um, I, can, I can talk a little bit more about what resources they have within a company to benchmark salaries. Um, but certainly the companies are, the companies certainly are sharing data. And I think as employees, we ourselves, there's sort of a taboo nature to salaries and numbers, which I understand. Um, but I also think that we could collectively all do better as a, as a, as a group, as a employees, right? Uh, if we talked and shared more with each other. Um, and so go talk to people, go ask them, ask them their opinion. You know, I want some feedback and advice and your, your help evaluating this opportunity, um, including the compensation. And you'll be surprised what people are willing to share with you. You know, we've had people call up their friends and literally next thing you know, they've got four, <laughs> four of their friends have given them the exact salaries that they have at that exact company, which is a great resource for you. Um, and then try looking online. I know there's those resources, Glassdoor, um, there's a bunch of these different PESA, PayScale, salary.com resources. Um, how, accurate are those online, how accurate are those online websites? Like there's always a range and you hear like reviews They don't, they don't take all the compensation into account. Like in your experience, are they ballpark right or? Yeah. So, um, they, unfortunately, so that was going to be my next point is please use them as resources, but just know that they're oftentimes incorrect. Um, and that's only because, I mean, they're operating at scale and everyone is inputting numbers in a different way. And some people put in, in order to access the information, they don't necessarily tell the truth. And it's hard to scrub all that dirty data out of the clean data. So they're trying their best, um, but the data is often very, very skewed. Um, so just use it as a reference, but don't obviously don't trust it 100%. Um, and in certain states, you can actually 
ask the recruiters to tell you what the compensation range actually is. So for example, in California, by law, they must actually tell you what the band is. So you can always ask for that. Sometimes they don't give you, sometimes they don't give you great um, bands as in, <laughs> it, although by law they are required to give you a band, no one is dictating how specific that band has to be. Um, but it's worth a shot, right? Legally, it's, it's, your, it's your right to ask that, ask that question. Is there their obligation to give it? So you lose nothing by just simply asking. Um, and then from there, um, my recommendation is that you should always negotiate. And there are some cases obviously where you may opt not to. Um, but my recommendation is just, just do it. There's really nothing for you to lose. So you might as well just throw your hat in the ring and they do it to your best of your ability. Um, and then from there, what we recommend is write out your talking points. Whether you wanna do it over email or phone is irrelevant. Just write it out first. Just write it out, uh, put it out on paper. And then from there, you can choose if you wanna email it out or you want to pick up the phone and call them. And that's pretty much the entire process. So if you really think about it from front to end, um, your time dealing with the company might only be about 20 minutes um, and it could net you, and I mean, it could net you zero, but more likely than not, it'll net you something. So if you think about it, that's a great ROI per minute um, totally. of your time. So what, what were some of the, like, what are some of the other levers that you can use? So most people think, oh, salary and, you know, maybe equity, but there's a whole range of things that employees can negotiate. What are some of the things that you see are important to people and they can use in that, in that process? Yeah. Um, most people that we've talked to assume uh, it's compensation that they can and should negotiate. Um, obviously, there's a whole whole range of things. Um, I will say though, there's a lot of articles. You, you you go on online and go to the Muse or any any of these career websites. Indeed has a blog or any of these blogs, and they're they're saying negotiate vacation days and negotiate time off and negotiate educational opportunities and negotiate uh, accelerated advancement, et cetera. So I'll, we all know this, right? Anecdotally or research-wise, we all know that compensation is only one part of what we look for in a job. In fact, for most people, it's only, it's not as big of a component as we might, we might think. Um, for example, for me, getting to spend time with family in a location near my family is much more important to me than say, whatever amount of money. Um, however, uh, I think what these articles miss is the fact that you may or may not actually be able to change some of these things. So imagine you're going to Google or say, let's say McKinsey, um, they have, Google has 80,000, I think, employees and they have a set vacation policy for all of them. So it's not a good use of your social capital to go to Google HR and say, hey, listen, what would really move the needle on this package is 10 more vacation days for me. And it's not that they're not willing to give it to you. It's just they can't possibly change their policy for 80,000 employees or make an exception on 80,000 employees of policy in order to give you 10 extra days. Yeah. So I usually advise people to use their social capital a different way. Um, so that's why they always say the most important thing about negotiating is understanding your own BATNA, your, you know, your negotiating alternatives, but also understanding the other person and understanding what are their incentives and what they can move on. Rules of thumb, uh, this might be fairly uh, obvious to, to this audience. Signing bonus is probably the most, easy, the most easy thing to get recruiters to move on. In fact, many times, if you just email them back and say, I have some questions about the offer, they'll just tack on a signing bonus because wow. that's their lever to, to get you to join. So that's, that is by far the easiest thing to move is signing bonus. Bonus structure, we typically find that it's hard to change it unless you have a very uh, unique or specific bonus structure to yourself or else, you know, if it's 15% for everyone, it's 15%. Um, salary is harder to change because it's year over year. Um, but uh, companies certainly want to 
if they feel if you make an argument that they're you're, you're leveled at the wrong place, they, they certainly want to give that to you. Um, and equity is a tricky one because it really depends on the company itself and how much they value that equity. For all sort of you know, logical purposes, uh, equity and salary uh, should be the two most tricky things to negotiate. Um, but sometimes because equity is so unquantifiable, as in no one really knows how much it's worth, it could be super easy to get more of it because they're just like, great, here's more of it. We don't even know how much this really is worth. Um, or it could be really hard if you have if you have a company that's super tight on equity, for example, it might be really, really difficult to wrangle more out of them. Yep. So those are those financial components. And so let's put that aside for a second. And then you, the second part of your question was asking about the other types of things, intangibles, right? Um, on that one there, I would really try to figure out what it is that they can offer. And that is not a conversation you're likely to have with the recruiter, but you're more likely to have that with your hiring manager. And you should figure out with him or her uh, what exactly are the things they could move on. And sometimes we actually recommend you just talk to them directly about that stuff. As in your recruiter, if you want 10 extra vacation days, um, your recruiter may or may not even really have an opinion of the matter. You know, whatever, have more or less vacation days. It's really up to your manager to decide if that's going to be fit with, with their team. So sometimes we say just 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 go straight to the person who's gonna you're gonna be working with and ask them for the leeway. Um, and they're the ones who actually have the authority sometimes to grant it anyway. So you might as well, you might as well just go straight to them. So a question on the like the the recruiter's role. How much ability do they have to change the offer without going back to the, the company, their hire manager? It, obviously, it's company dependent, but are there situations where they own the whole process and they can make the judgment or are they just a conduit for the negotiation? So the recruiters, um, the recruiters have leeway. They have some leeway to move. And the reason for this is because no recruiter will usually offer you the best offer or the offer that they're authorized to offer you at the beginning. They will usually knock it down a certain percentage just to give themselves some room to negotiate. So they come to you with an offer of $100,000. They probably were authorized to offer you 105,000, but they knocked it down a bit to give themselves some room. Some room that they don't have to go and reauthorize, right? Um, then after that, everything is, everything is negotiable and everything is, is completely dependent on the recruiter and also the company. So if you're working with a more senior recruiter, uh, someone who's you know, been at the company for longer or more tenured or more, or more senior, he or she might have a lot of authority to just you know, make the offer what, what they want. If you're working with a more junior person, it's possible they don't have any leeway to, to move the offer. But either way, they will always tell you that they have to go check with the committee. And that's because one of the foundational rules of negotiating is always have uh, someone in your back pocket that you need to go check with. And that's something that you should employ as well. So the recruiters, they always have to go check with their back office to make sure compensation committee or whatever to make sure it's okay. So you should put that back office person in your corner too. So before you agree to anything, never agree to anything, you should put a back office person and that could be your husband. It could be your wife. It could be your family. It could be an advisor. It could be a mentor. It could be anyone. Um, but they will always go back and say, okay, thanks so much, Ben. Let me go check, check with the team and I'll get back to you. And so for all on your side too, uh, you can just put someone in your corner. You're like, that's great. You know, Stephanie, um, let me go check with my wife or my husband, or let me go check with my advisor and, and have a discussion with them about, about uh, the entire package and I'll get back to you. And so um, as I'm thinking about like that first negotiation, clearly if, if you know, say they say the office $100,000, like is asking for 150,000, like just, does that, is that gonna cut off any further conversation? Like how should I think about my first counter in that to, to be reasonable, but also not to be just 
you know, outlandish. Right. <laughs> so this has actually happened before, as in we've actually done this before. Someone got us say a $200,000 offer and we went and asked for $300,000. So we asked for 50% more and it feels ridiculous, right? Yeah, I want another $100,000. Um, so that's why it's important to have benchmarks that you can fall back on. If not for the recruiter, even just for yourself to give yourself the confidence to go and do it. So I can tell you for a fact, me, myself, say coming out of the GSB, if I got a job offer and someone said, you should ask for $100,000 more, $200,000 more or whatever, I myself would get really anxious about that. And I probably wouldn't have the confidence to go do it. But if you give yourself a, a benchmark, a number and say someone else got that number, now it's not, you're not pulling it out of thin air. And so when you go make that ask, um, rather than thinking, oh my God, I just asked for 50% more, 100% more. Am I going to get kicked in the face for this? You say no in your head. You're like, wow, someone else already got that. So this is clearly what's acceptable. And I should at least put my foot forward and ask for it. And obviously the trickiest part about the entire bit is finding that person, finding that benchmark. And to be honest, I think all of us are shuffling around this elephant in the room, which is that employees just don't have enough data. And that's the that's the integral part of all these negotiations is having the data. Um, all these tactics that I'm talking about are ways to get around the fact that you don't have data. Yep. Um, if you have data, you can obviously just take a spreadsheet, send it over and be like, this is this is what's fair. There's no no conversation even, I mean, obviously some conversation needs to happen, but um, if things were more algorithmic, we wouldn't even have this whole field. We wouldn't even have this whole sort of uh, show and dance of negotiating at all. Yeah. Well, you alluded to the company side earlier, and I think that's a fascinating part to dive into. So they do have the data. It sounds like they have ways to understand what the market rate is for certain roles. Can you walk us through the advantages they're coming in with and how are, how they're benchmarking actual salaries? Sure. So I'll actually talk about both sides, which is the advantages they have and also the struggles they have. So companies obviously have a lot more resources they can pool, as in Imagine you as an employee are willing to spend say $100 to figure out compensation. If they're willing to spend $100 per employee, which is the same as you, right? But they have 10,000 employees. That's a lot of money that they have pooled to figure this stuff out. Um, I just wanna caveat that by saying that this whole industry is a gigantic mess. As in the companies themselves are also themselves scrambling to figure out what exactly is fair pay. They don't even themselves know. And I can spend some time right now, which I will, and talk about what resources they do have um, and talk about some of the messes that go on inside of a company. That'd be great. So there's a big company called the Radford. There's Option Impact. Um, there's a couple of these big HR companies. And what they do is they pull data. So they go to you and they go to McKinsey and they go to Google and they go to Airbnb and they go to H&R Block and they go to all these different companies and say, contribute your data, your, your compensation information to me. And then I'm gonna pull all this data and sell it back to you and give you these basically these uh, dashboards that you can look at. So you can plug it in and say, I'm hiring a finance analyst with five years of work experience, what's the industry standard for this? And in addition to asking you to pay for it, they also obviously ask you to contribute your data as a sharing type mechanism. Now, even with this type of mechanism, the data is still super messy. So they do this say once a year. Think about how fast you know data science salaries or some of these salaries, how fast they change, you know, one minute, and no one even knows what an AI engineer is. The next minute, they're the hottest things in sliced bread and Google's hiring them for a million bucks a pop. So yeah. it's, it's so hard to keep up with how fast these salaries change. And the companies do their best, they genuinely do. They spend a lot of time and a lot of money and uh, 
I can give an anecdote of what HR does around promotion cycles. They literally are there doing <laughs> the most tedious and horrible work of all time, trying to make sure that these salaries are, they're doing their best to make sure these salaries are fair. Um, but, you know, they themselves are struggling to get great data to benchmark these things. And so it's just a problem with the entire industry. The companies are struggling to benchmark, but they of course have more resources than the employees and the employees are super struggling to benchmark. And therein emerges this whole negotiation song and dance because no one's really sure. Everyone's kind of just throwing things out and dancing around and playing this, you know, guessing game essentially to try to end up at the correct number. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so part of me wonders, uh, you know, there's not a lot of negotiation in McKinsey. They have a pretty set uh, pathway and and salary bands, and you know they don't. I've never heard of anyone being able to go and negotiate, except you know maybe some partners. But yeah. why why is there even room for negotiation in these things? What would and this is probably a simplistic view, but wouldn't a company just say, "Hey, we want you to come on board. We know this is a fair market rate. Here it is." Take it or leave it. Like, are they? Is it? A, is it a first test to see how aggressive the employee is? Are they? Are they truly trying to fish around for the right number because they themselves don't know? Are they trying to maximize their profitability? What What is the incentive for the companies to try to lowball their employees, knowing they have a, an, an information disadvantage? So, I, I, the way I think about it is, there's never anything um, badly intentioned going on. It's always just. As the name of your podcast, the random walk, they try a bunch of different things and they actually found that engaging in this negotiation process is the easiest, most efficient and most advantageous way to them to get employees in the door. So there's a couple components. And the first thing is that a firm like McKinsey, um, there's no shortage of talent trying to go there. So, but they're a very unique set of companies. There's a very elite set of companies that have that problem, right? Or that advantage. McKinsey, Google, Goldman, these are not your everyday companies. And that slice of companies is is extremely, extremely small. So even if you get to a company like Shell, huge company, tons of their market cap is ridiculous, is is off the chain, right? And yet they have problems hiring. And when is the last time that Shell has come to Stanford, for example, and successfully hired a group of CS majors? Right. Um, and why would those people choose to go to there over Google or, you know, they're getting snatched up by those companies. And so that this McKinsey sort of tier of companies is, is super special and very unique. And you've got to take them out of the conversation when you think about salaries and negotiating because they just don't play by the same rules. Um, for everyone else, it's because A, it's just no one really knows on either side. And two is that it's too expensive to continually make offers and continually lose people for them. So if you just do the math yourself, and I'm not gonna spend a ton of time and just run through basic math that all of us can do, just crunch the numbers on your own time if you want. Interview process, you add up phone screen, then you add up panel interview, on-site, maybe a writing sample or whatever, you know, then a final interview with a director or VP person. Um, Add all those up and just multiply it by say an hourly rate of $50. You'll see how expensive it is to interview just just one person. Mm -hmm. And in order for them to create these curves, right? No no company wants to hire one-off. They always want to create normalization curve so they can see who's truly at the upper end of the band, who's truly in the middle of the bell curve and who's truly at the lower end. Yep. So multiply that process that times 50 say by that whole band and it is very expensive to hire and they still haven't even gotten someone in the door yet. So it is just way, way, way too expensive for them to keep making offers and keep getting them get rejected. So that's why they're like, okay, pause, before you reject this offer, please just come and tell me what, what, will, what will make it happen for you so we can just get this done. And obviously they don't, it's not a process where they say, here's an offer, Ben. If Ben doesn't take it, they have to go restart this whole process. Of course, it's not like that. They have other candidates in the pipeline. They just kind of tee up. 
Um, but it's just an extremely expensive process. And so they just can't afford to do it continually. They also can't afford to not do it, right? They, they hire the wrong person. That's also extremely expensive. And that is actually why I think we've been seeing a lot more of these sort of intern to hires or contract to hire and externships, this type of stuff, rather than trying to guess who's going to be great and guess who's not going to be great. They just aren't just like, hey, do the job and we'll just see. Um, the other thing is that then a lot of companies actually use negotiations as a chance to sell you again on the company. Mm-hmm. So they say, Ben, I'm offering you say, let's just say they're offering you a million bucks. Um, Be nice. <laughs> like Ben, here's your initial offer, it's a million bucks. Um, and you go back and say, oh gosh, this other company offered me a million, 1.1 mil and you know, you know, can you, can you match it and whatever? And they'll come back and say, Ben, you are such an exceptional candidate. You know, 1.1 mil is just, that's crazy, Ben. How can you, it's just, that's so insanely high. But because you are so special, Ben, you are the special snowflake. We made it happen for you. We actually got you 1.2 mil. Here you go. And anyone coming out of that, including myself, is going to feel awesome about that, right? It feels like you just pulled off at a, like a crazy negotiation. It feels like they just valued you so much because they just went and pulled this snowflake deal out of nowhere for you. And the thing is that may or may not, it could be entirely true. It also could just be <laughs> entirely theater yep. <laughs> and you don't know. As in, they, they, they could have been sitting in the back room being like, oh, like we have 1.3 for Ben. Why don't we offer one and then do this whole song and dance so it feels so special, right? Mm-hmm. And we're all, we're all, we're all like this, right? That's just human nature to want to feel loved and to feel special and to feel like we belong. And they use this negotiations as a chance to reinforce that with you. So for them, it's actually another useful, um, useful exercise. And the last thing is that they actually also use the negotiations as a chance to get to know you. Mm. So, and by the way, you should use this as a chance to get to know them as well, of course. So we've had people go in and execute really stellar negotiations. And we've had people go in and execute unstellar negotiations. And no matter what happens, whether good or bad or left or right, or you know, whatever way you decide to do it, they learn something about you. And whatever way they decide to do it, you learn something about them as well. So it's additional data point for them as to what kind of, what kind of negotiator and maybe underneath all of it, what kind of employee you're going to be. Um, so that's why, that's why they do all this. Is there a situation in which they would actually rescind an offer during the negotiation because of what they find out about your negotiating style? So the, what I should be saying on this podcast is it's extremely rare and it almost never happens, which is true. It is extremely, extremely rare. And it almost, it, it does almost never happen. Um, but that's because most people are super friendly and nice and they play by the rules and they generally are not looking to, they're not looking to <laughs> instigate a situation in which their offer could get rescinded. Um, but we've actually seen it happen. So we've seen negotiations get executed so badly on either side that offers get rescinded. Uh, I can, one good example, I'll give you a really short story. Someone agreed to come on to a company. They said, this is great. Um, I'm fine with the salary. I'm fine with the compensation. Everything looks great. I just want to talk a little bit about my responsibilities. So of course, everyone sat down. They had a, everyone was really happy, right? They're like, oh gosh, we got this person. They're going to start. Let's just work out some of these responsibilities and we'll be good to go, right? sat down to work out these responsibilities. Then next thing you know, they came back and said, now that we've renegotiated the responsibilities, now I should get more money. Offer rescinded immediately. Wow. Um, so some of, some of these things can, can cause it to happen, but by and far, like we're all reasonable and, and um, well-intentioned people. 
even if you mess up in a negotiations, we're all well-intentioned, right? And I think we should all give each other the benefit of the doubt. Even if you mess up, you're probably not gonna get anything rescinded, only if you really, really step over the line. And what differences have you all seen in like a small, let's say less than 50 person, could be a startup or smaller company versus, you know, a big company like a Shell or Google in terms of how to approach negotiation? Yeah. So the biggest difference is who you're negotiating with and what their incentives are. So let's take Shell, for example. You're definitely negotiating with a recruiter and that recruiter is definitely being measured on his or her ability to close the candidate, find the right candidate and then close the candidate. If you're talking to a startup, say 49 people, it's a very good chance they don't have a recruiter and you're talking directly to the VP of engineering or the CTO or you know, the head of sales or the, even the CEO, right? And their number one goal is to get the right person at the best possible price and to make sure that you're happy and you wanna stay and just work your butt off at this company, right? So those are two very, very, very different sets of incentives. For the recruiter at Shell, his or her job is just find the right person, get it done, close the deal, get you signed, get you started, and we're good to go. Over here um, on the startup side, um, they care a lot more about fit and they care a lot more about sometimes price depending on you know what kind of um what stage they're at how much money they have etc and so generally I, the general advice that i give on these both sides is at shell you should just just negotiate it because <laughs> most likely you're not going to talk to this recruiter again in a professional setting you maybe you're friends with them and you want to keep in touch but you're unlikely to be working with this recruiter in a professional setting after this negotiation. So just do it. And most likely you'll get something because they just want it to be done, right? On this side with the startup, for example, um, the advantage you have here is that you're, you're literally talking to the head honcho here. So they're authorized to give you a lot more. They can, I mean, uh, sky's the limit, right? If you want, I mean, I'm being a little ridiculous here, but you say you want a new car for instead of relocation bonus, or you want whatever, um, you want them to relocate your cat over. Um, you're talking to literally someone who's in charge. So they can authorize whatever it is you want. So you can be a lot more creative about these negotiations. Um, be like, okay, like I really, really want more equity in this company. And in exchange for that, can we put in some tiered salary raise? I will take, you know, ridiculously low salary today. And then at your next round, I want it to be bumped up this much, your next round, this much, this much, this much. So you can be super creative with them, but obviously within reason. I mean, um, I run a company and if someone tried to ask to bend too many rules, I'd be like, oh gosh, like, I don't even know how much it's going to cost legal fee wise to implement this. So it may not be worth it. Um, but certainly if someone has a reasonable request from me and it serves both our interests, of course the answer is yes, right? Um, and they're talking to someone and this person would be talking to someone directly in charge so they can ask for more creative options to be designed basically. Yeah. So you mentioned you run a company, obviously, you are in uh, compensation and other negotiations with new hires. What's the philosophy that you take in that negotiating room to come to the right type of deal? Oh, um, we operate by just what I find to be, I mean, I know these negotiations are really nerve inducing and stress inducing. And so we try, and on top of that, there's this additional stress factor because we are a negotiations company. So we try to just make it as friendly as possible. Um, and we basically say, we try to put in every possible checkpoint and sort of friendly face in there to make it as uh, sort of digestible and friendly as possible. Um, and besides from that, we don't do things any differently than anyone else. You know, We just follow best practices that everyone does, but we just acknowledge that it's super stress inducing and we try to put uh, more friendliness around the whole thing. 
Um, mm-hmm. Besides from that, I myself have not invented a better way of doing this quite yet. So if and when I do, you'll be the first to know. But I think it'll be a huge value add to both employees and employers. Definitely. So, you know, when you first started Riva, um, there was a lot of research about different demographics and different groups that tended to do better negotiations than others. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through some of that research and how that might have impacted your view of building Riva? Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Ben. I think that's a really important conversation in, in within this whole conversation. Um, we have all heard so much about 81 cents on the dollar, gender inequity. It is a very, very real thing. And I'm very sad to say that even anecdotally, I've seen it in real life. And it's sad for me to see that because we've come such a long way, right? I mean, we have new laws that say that we need to have members on boards who come from diverse backgrounds. And while I'm not sure that any of these are going to fix the problem, the underlying problem of why there isn't as much diversity as there should be, um, it's attempts to fix the problem. And it's sad for me to sit here and report to you that anecdotally, from my experience, literally helping people negotiate, what I see in real life matches up exactly with the research. It's sad, it's really, really sad. Um, But we see that a number of factors, um, women are tend to get offered less um, they tend to last, ask less often in fear of backlash, et cetera. Um, and even when they do ask, they tend to receive less. Um, and now there's an additional, actually, this is a very new piece of research, by the way, that just came out. They actually found that even when they do ask and even are, and are successful, um, there's this sort of status quo thing that's happening where if a woman asks, and receives more compensation, for example, it helps everyone. So the men and the woman benefit from it. Because what happens is that a woman asks and they say, okay, here's another $10,000. The men on her team will also get bumped an extra $10,000 to make things fair. But the other way around is not true. So um, if a a guy negotiates for $10,000 extra, that doesn't necessarily mean that his whole team is gonna get an extra $10,000. Now, I'm saying this all um, in a a little bit of an anecdotal way because this research is super, super, super brand new. And um, I, so I can't substantiate it with, you know, a peer reviewed paper here. Um, But there's so many layers of this that all, all compound. Um, and it's when you add on layers of sort of intersectionality, so you add on race and ethnic background and even how you look, it gets, the, <laughs> it gets even more complicated and in some ways worse. So if you layer on, uh, if you're a woman and you are black, for example, or you are Asian, that again changes the sense in the dollar thing, the equation. And so, yeah. it's interesting you mentioned that. I just read a research article last month that showed that on average, macro Asian women now make more on average than than white men in America. And I wonder if if that's there's probably a number of reasons for that, and that's at the macro level. Um, is that do you think that's because of the the career fields that you know maybe Asian women are going into? Is it we have true improvement in society as we kind of address these things. I've also seen that, you know, white single women in their late twenties make more than their white male peers uh, in the same industries. Um, so it seems like there's, there's definitely some research that's going both directions. Like how do you see this stuff, this playing out? Yeah, I think I, I read also a study that showed that um, I think Asian men were out earning white men I don't, don't quote me on this one. I just remember, I'd read a lot of these articles and I think I saw something like that, at least here in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's fair either way, to be honest. For example, let's just say that 
some version of this 80 cents in the dollar thing is true that women are making less than men. We don't exactly know how much. It could be 80 cents, it could be 50, it could be 92. Um, I mean, the thing is how you slice it makes such a big difference on the number. Um, but at the same time, there's a ton of stigma for men around taking leave, vacation, maternity leave, paternity leave. And this is also shown very much in research that if a guy goes off and takes four months of paternity leave, he might face some kind of backlash when he gets back. Um, but if a woman goes and takes maternity leave that she may not face that same stigma basically. Mm -hmm. So a lot of guys are actually afraid to go on paternity leave. I heard a story about this guy who literally in order to get time off to spend with his kid, his newborn kid, he literally took a vacation day, went back to the office, took another vacation day, went back to the office, took another vacation day. He literally was just cycling in and out just to make it look like he was still there, even though he was totally entitled to this vacation time and totally entitled to this leave time. He felt the need to just show up sporadically at the office. So it didn't look like he wasn't there. So we are far from equity on both sides. Um, it's just different problems for different people mm -hmm. and different problems for different intersections of, of people. Um, and it's not obviously just with negotiating, it's the whole picture. Google ran a, a, a study and what they did was they took resumes, identical resumes and changed the names and measured how often people would actually even get interviews. So we're not talking about negotiating here. We're talking about just, just giving out the interview. And they found that when, even when you give, you allow black and Hispanic employees within Google to give out those interviews, the rate at which they would give the interviews to black and Hispanic candidates was lower than you would expect. Then, you know, the blinded, if you unblind that version. And this is shown not just at Google and not just for black and Hispanic folks. Uh, it's shown more broadly that, you know, they, they run this at doctors, um, for hospitals, it's shown widely that if you sort of take a resume, you know, these fake resumes, and then you flip the names and make it appear as if someone is white or Hispanic or black or Asian or et cetera, you get different results, not just in terms of money, but also in terms of how often they get the interview, um, how often they'll receive the job, um, what kinds of support they'll get offered as in, you know, advancement up the ladder and et cetera. So it is, it's far from simple. It is far, far from simple. And so much of it is baked into our unconscious biases that it's even hard to recognize sometimes that it's happening. And I like to believe that we're all well-intentioned, but it's just so hard to undo some of these unconscious biases. And it's gonna take a lot more work for us to get to a true state of parity. Um, that's going to yeah. be, I mean, we are, I think we are, I think it's awesome. We're making so much progress. Um, but I think there's also, it's, it's such a, it's such a behemoth of a thing that I think we need to set smaller milestones for ourselves, you know, that. And are you finding rungs. certain groups are using your platform more than others, or is it pretty evenly distributed? And we, out of respect for our customers and our users don't track that kind of information. And, you know, especially since our mission is to combat this type of inequity, um, we certainly yeah. don't want to make it feel like we are offering different advice or services to people who self-identify into different categories. So out of respect for our customers, we don't, we don't track any of that. Um, but I, I think it would be very, very interesting information to, to pull out. Um, and I know a number of other of these data companies are running these surveys. They'll look at their data mm -hmm. and be like, wow, it's, you know, the pay gap is real or in our data, it is not real, you know, et cetera. Um, and I yeah. think it's awesome. The more information out there, the better. Yeah, and so you've, you mentioned data a couple of times and, you know, if this gets too deep into, you know, proprietary company stuff, please feel free to, to gently nudge me away. But it seems like the stuff that you're collecting is really filling the gap in the lack of employee knowledge. And so as you kind of build your company out, 
um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about you know, how you're monetizing this service. Is there a data play here where actually the data that you're assembling could be some of the best in the business because you are on the cutting edge of these negotiations and the outcomes? Or like, what do you, how do you think about the data that you're getting compared to like the glass doors, which could be rife with errors? Yeah, um, I think data is the, is the name of the game, honestly. And for our company, for any other company that wants is, is in this field or wants to be in this field, I think it's all about data. Everyone needs more of it. Yeah, I talked earlier about how everyone needs something different. The one exception to that is data. Data is going to be the name of the game for any company, ours or any company in this in this field. So I mentioned earlier about the fact that everyone needs something different, advice, support, coaching, practice, whatever. The only exception to that is data. So companies, employees, they need better data, more data, more up-to-date, more inclusive, and also sliced more finely. It needs to happen faster, and it needs to actually happen on faster rotations than just once a year. And yeah. it needs to change and update to the market faster. Um, and it needs to get more fine-grained. Not every, you know, I, I'm a software engineer, you're a software engineer. That does not mean that we should get paid the same, right? Yep. And so that's, I think, the name of the game for everyone. And, and it's super unclear how that's going to happen, though. So take Glassdoor. They are the most notable. I don't know if they pioneered it, but they're the most notable player in the whole crowdsourcing space. So that's what they tried. Crowdsourcing is their sort of stake in the ground. They tried that. And we see the results, right? And it kind of worked and it kind of didn't. So I think that what should happen is that we should try different things. So crowdsourcing, Glassdoor tried. Let's try something else. Let's try something else. Um, and the end goal of all of this stuff is to see whether we can improve the quantity and also the quality of the data. And between these two, I think the biggest, biggest decision that needs to be made is which one is more important, quantity mm -hmm. or, or quality. Yeah. Because for, for example, we collect super high quality data, but our quantity is not that high because we only collect what people negotiate. Glassdoor collects enormous amounts of data, but it's really, really rough because you know it's self-reported and people just put in whatever just, just to get access to the platform. Yeah. So neither approach is correct, I think. And I think the real winner in all of this is the person that figures out how to balance or invents a third category and is able to basically tie it all together. And if I could tell you the answer to that question right now, I would be doing it. Um, <laughs> so I think it's something we need to figure out basically. Yeah, I mean, one of the platforms I've seen is just Google Sheets where people will put together like on the anonymous salary trackers. And I saw one for journalists, I think it was a couple of years ago, which was fascinating. And it was everybody from you know, your, your local newspaper reporter to, you know, LA Times senior editor. And one, I was struck by how little journalists make at a very senior level. I was just, wow, okay, that's really interesting. But two, it was a really unique way to get just a general sense of where you fall out. And I think other efforts have been done in other industries. I mean, maybe Google had one at some point, mm -hmm. um, but like companies are obviously very protective of their compensation data for good reason. And so how do you think about balancing the, the desire for transparency and market understanding with, you know, the very real legal moats that companies put up to protect what could be proprietary data? Mm -hmm. So I think the crowdsourcing stuff is awesome. So Glassdoor is the, is, is the sort of the golden example of it. Yeah. And obviously Glassdoor didn't meet the need for a lot of people. And so a lot of people came up with their own. So there's, you mentioned one for journalists, there's one for interns, um, like interns at certain tech companies even. Hmm. There's one for the company specific, you know, Google specific, Facebook specific, they, the employees circulate the stuff around. Um, I think the beauty of this is that it's built on itself. It's generated, crowd generated. Also that I think is the major flaw in all this too. As in when you take that journalist spreadsheet and spin it up to the size of Glassdoor, 
it becomes just like Glassdoor and becomes really wrong. The core data becomes really, really hard to manage. It's so rough and there's so much dirty data in the clean data. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the, that's, the, that's the problem there. I'm not saying that there couldn't be something that is um, almost like a very bespoke glass door that's very personalized per industry. Mm-hmm. You can imagine a spreadsheet for everything, right? Spreadsheet for this, spreadsheet for that, a spreadsheet for you know um, farmers who are 10 years into with this many acres of land. I, you know, I'm making stuff up. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you can imagine so many of different different spreadsheets. Um, and there's also a, a huge number of companies that are tackling this in different ways. So this is a kind of a random example and nothing to do with um, salary or compensation, but there's a company that one of our classmates works at that basically tries to introduce more transparency into seed buying. Like literally when farmers go and buy seeds and that is also an extremely murky industry and Monsanto just charges whatever they, whatever they want and the negotiations you know, happens. And it's not an industry that I wanna to speak too much on because I'm, it's not an industry that I'm in right now. Um, but it's the same concept, basically, lack of transparency, right? Lack of transparency into prices, which warns the need for a company to literally come in and introduce more transparency. Um, and that's what's going on here. Um, I think the spreadsheets uh, are great per specific vertical. Um, I don't know how it'll work if you scale it up. I mean, Glassdoor did it and it only worked mediocre or, you know, better Mm -hmm. than nothing results. Um, And I don't know if there's a more creative way of collecting and also verifying this data. Um, By the way, the companies pretty much work on the same Glassdoor model. Mm -hmm. The brand um, Radford that I mentioned, Option Impact, they all work on the same Glassdoor model, basically crowdsourcing. But instead of crowdsourcing one at a time, they crowdsource 1,000, 200, 50, basically the size of the company. They, if they onboard one company, they get the entire compensation list for that entire company. That's why it's easier and better because they're not doing it one by one. Like Glassdoor does it one by one, right? Mm-hmm. They can go onboard Google and get 80,000 at one time. Um, so, but it's the same concept basically on employee side and the company side, the same concept of, of crowdsourcing. Um, so far, no one's figured out a better way of doing it. And I think that's what needs to happen, to be honest. Well, Stephanie, this has been a fascinating conversation. We're getting to the end of our time, but I want to give you one last chance to, to pitch what you're doing. But also, if you can leave our listeners with maybe three things to take away as they go to the next negotiation, uh, that'd be great. So sure. tell us about Reva, where we can go access it, and then maybe three things that our listeners can take away from this conversation. Sure. Um, so in terms of Reva stuff, um, I think the most I'll say about this is that, um, you should just, no matter what format in which you want to negotiate it, just, just please do it. Um, you can access all of our stuff at our website. It's at rivanegotiations.com, uh, R-I-V-A negotiations, plural.com. Um, and you can check out everything there. Um, if, you know, that's, that's all I'll say about that. And please only use it if it's going to be a, a value add to your life. Um, and you can, you have full transparency into everything before you choose to use it or not use it. Um, in terms of three takeaways, um, one is you'd be surprised how many negotiations you do day to day without even realizing it. So use every single one as a chance to practice. And two is that we basically offer services to help automate or help help enhance this process. But at the end of the day, I agree with all of everyone who's come to me and said, I want to learn this process. I think it's probably one of the more valuable life skills you'll, you'll ever pick up in your life. And one of the skills you'll probably use more often than not is negotiating things. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's all good and well to outsource it, but I really do think it's a thing that you should pick up on your own and just, it's a, it's a good investment of your time, if not money to just take a course or something to practice. Um, 
And the third one is no matter how many courses you take or blogs you read or books you read, you're never gonna get good at it without practicing it and practicing it in as close to a real life environment as you can and practicing it under very, very distressing circumstances. So don't practice it when you're super happy, you know, with a glass of wine, everything in your life is going great and you're practicing it with your, your SO and they're super friendly and supportive. Um, take an opportunity to find, um, find, find a boss you hate or so a, a report who just you and them don't jibe and use it as an opportunity to hone these skills under more distressing circumstances. Um, I do this all the time and you're gonna mess up. I, I, I can't even count the number of times I've messed up. We're all gonna mess up, but I think this skill essentially, once it's yours, it's yours, right? And it's well worth it to, to learn it because you use it, I mean, you're probably using it 10 times a day without even realizing it. Yeah. So. That's, that, that that's what I say me. about that. <laughs> what is it, Ben? Uh, that, that definitely speaks to me. I think I theoretically have a lot of these like ideas in my mind of how to negotiate, but I don't, I think day to day I do it a lot, but I don't have the, the concerted effort with an adversary to push me and really get myself good. So I, I love those three takeaways. Uh, well, Stephanie, thanks again for joining us on this latest edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. We'll be back next week. Thanks and have a great new year. Cheers. Thanks, Ben. Okay. It was a pleasure.